0: 1935, A.W. Lawrence sent out a note for his brother's funeral. The body will be taken in a plain coffin wrapped in a union jack from the little mortuary chapel today for burial in the village cemetery of Morton. There will be no flowers on the coffin and no inscription. No guard of honor will line the route and the mourners, whatever their rank, will wear plain clothes. For the same man, Winston Churchill himself had this to say. I fear, whatever our need, we shall never see his like again. The funeral was for T.E. Lawrence, who would forever be known as Lawrence of Arabia. Blind History we're into season 4 and I don't even know how many episodes but I'm I'm I've gone down the rabbit hole on so many of these and and this person today is one of those people I knew absolutely nothing about except the movie and now I find myself reading stories about Central Asia and about Arabia that I never thought I'd be interested in His name is T E Lawrence he is better known as Lawrence of Arabia and uh, thanks to Anthony Medera, my co-host, who is also the MD of Taylor blinds and shutters, who are proudly the people who bring you these fantastic history podcasts, if we do say so ourselves. Anthony told me we've got to do an episode on this guy. So it's thanks to you that I'm I'm interested in what his life meant and what his relevance is in the modern era, but also these incredible romantic stories of what happened in the Arabian desert, you know, almost a hundred years ago. Uh, it's quite something it's extraordinary so and uh, what got you interested in thomas edward lawrence so i
1: saw the movie like you did and uh extremely successful movie i think it had quite a few oscars mm. and it was a great story and then i uh, you know looked into it and there was so much more actually his, lo- his life is more interesting than the movie to be honest and yes yeah, so i just like you like you said i just dug more and more into it and it's a really great figure
0: well, let's give you the quick executive summary on Lawrence of Arabia, and then you can you can listen to some of the stories that Anthony and I have discovered about him. He was a British archaeologist, an army officer, a diplomat, a map maker, and a writer. He was well known for his role in the Arab Revolt from 1916 to 18, and he took part in the campaign against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. And really, this guy was uh, quite an, an amazing human being uh he was eventually called Lawrence of Arabia famously and pictured featured rather in that 1962 film called Lawrence of Arabia with Peter O'Toole based on his wartime activities but uh he was actually born out of wedlock in 1888 to his mother who, who was a governess who ran away with his father and uh, his father obviously abandoned his family for the governess so she must have been quite a looker or maybe she had the personality that he would inherit but he had some brothers and the beginning of his life was kind of ignominious, right? There wasn't a whole lot going on. Not really, but in those days, this was seriously
1: taboo, what his dad did. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Yeah, it shocked that upper class. I mean, because he was a landowner, It he was family wealth, and he gave all of that up, obviously, for, for the governess, Sarah, I think her name was. And she was quite a strict mom and disciplinarian. So maybe he was, maybe the, the dad was scared of her in
0: some way. So he had these brothers and all of them ended up going into war and fighting on the front. And I think he felt a little bit left out. He was, I think, the youngest and he did go to university. He studied at Oxford and um, he was, I think, an archaeologist, first of all. And then he volunteered for the British Army and was sent to the Arab Bureau, which is where his story really begins, because everything before then wasn't terribly remarkable.
1: But what went before then played a big role in what happened afterwards. Because um, he was seen at school, they picked up that he was some sort of child prodigy. They saw that at the school he was going to in Oxford, but he didn't like the way traditional education was, and so he did his own thing. He loved archaeology. The museum up the road started seeing more and more of him. But the problem was at home. He was different to to his brothers. They were very religious. The mom was very religious. I think she was trying to. Claw back some of her respectability. Respectability, correct. Because, I mean, she caused the breakup of a marriage. She had five children that out of wedlock, et cetera, et cetera. So, and he didn't, he wasn't interested in religion. So she tried to beat it into him. And I think that played a big, big role. A lot of strange behavioral traits that came out of this. There was a lot of guilt when he found out about his, what his dad really did. And so all mm-hmm. of these things paved the way, but archaeology was his true love. And I think, Prior to him actually joining the army, he used to go on bicycle trips to Europe to look at all the castles of the Crusaders, and that's what he wrote his thesis
0: on. Yeah, he was obsessed with medieval knights, and particularly the Crusades, and he would actually go around to cathedrals and chapels and make brass rubbings of the the tombs of famous knights from history. So when he eventually got the chance to go to the the Holy Land, it was you know, it was a dream come true for him. And I think that's how he evolved. And he did spend
1: prior to the war breaking out, he spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East, also very much looking at the Crusades, where the journey was, and all of that. And he just came to love
0: the area. I read an interesting thing about how he went to the castle of the famous, enormous castle in Palestine or in in, in the Levant, called the Crac de Chevalier, uh, which is this enormous castle that was used during the Crusades. And you know, even at that stage, and, and it still is a very dangerous place to go, Syria especially now is not exactly open for tourists, you know. And this guy was – he was traveling around there and taking it all in as a real, you know, a real fan of history and someone who I think we would have all got along with. Um, but in the end, he was craving some real action, you know. He wasn't the sort of person to just sit around and and, and admire old buildings and live in his imagination the life of a, of a crusader, he wanted to actually take part in battle himself. And he couldn't find a better place than in the Middle East at that time. It was such a mess. The Ottoman Empire was more or less in control. And the Ottoman Empire had an army which was largely staffed by uh, amateurs, but they were trained by the Germans. And of course, the Ottoman Empire was in, a, in an alliance with the Germans in the uh, first world war and well the approaching first world war and the rest of of the middle east was sort of governed by these tribes Uh, the arabs were very distinctly different from the turks and from the persians and there were also a lot of sort of scattered bedouin tribes which considered themselves to not belong to any nation at that stage and lawrence had this dream Uh, because he had enmeshed himself with the Arab people at that stage. He had this dream of helping them to achieve their independence. Unfortunately for him, it came at just the right time, because as the First World War broke out, the Ottoman Turks declared a a fatwa against a jihad, in fact, against the the British. And this allowed him to undermine the the, the Turkish Ottoman Empire – by turning the Arabs against them and promising them some kind of freedom. That was the overall political story. But there, there are stories that go on underneath this, which are maybe more fascinating. The British
1: wanted to stir the pot and create this revolt. And he really was, was instrumental in doing that. And he started getting to know um, the leaders of quite a small group. In the beginning, there wasn't a lot of Arabs that were against uh, Turkish rule. There was a minority that that were causing uprisings, but that grew and grew and grew as they gained success. But Gareth, very much guerrilla-style tactics, so blowing up railway tracks, but not blowing up all the tracks, just blowing up specific areas or blowing it up to the extent that it looked fine, but it would cause massive damage.
0: Yeah, As you say, guerrilla tactics, but we might even call it terrorism if we were the Ottomans at the time. And there was one distinct line which ran from – I think from Istanbul, right down as a spine into Arabia and through Medina, um, which is obviously the place where the prophet Muhammad is buried. And this was a very important strategic line. And the Turks were caught completely unawares because what Lawrence had done is he'd gone to meet a very important man in that part of the world, Sharif Hussein, who was effectively the, the boss, the emir of Mecca which is obviously an, another important holy site and he had some sons Ali Abdullah and Faisal and when Lawrence met Faisal he reckoned this is the guy who can help me lead a revolt against the Ottomans
1: and he got very close to Faisal i mean that they formed a great partnership
0: and Faisal was was a very interesting man i mean in, in some ways he was you know he was that prototypical stereotypical arab prince who was, you know, violent and, and temperamental and difficult to understand, but he was also a tremendously thoughtful man and was well read and understood instinctively military strategy. And I think that probably worked in Lawrence's favor because from then on, as you rightly point out, the two of them had an incredibly successful campaign. I think the highlight of which was the, the siege of Aqaba, which is a, a port on the, I think on the Red Sea. Uh, which is in that triangle between Sinai and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it's a very important strategic port as well, because Aquaba is one of the the most important entries into the the Red Sea. And I think that this this raid, this siege, was immortalized in the movie by you know Lawrence of Arabia on his camel uh, rushing down into Aquaba and and seizing it. But there was an interesting story that he, in order to get the Arabs, to stop just skirmishing on the outskirts of the battle. He actually told the leader of one of the tribes, are you people here to work or are you just here to watch? And yeah. this chief, this sheikh, decided, screw you. And he, he rounded up his men. And before Lawrence knew what was going on, they were all heading down into the valley to meet the Ottomans.
1: This is without any, not one single day of battlefield training. So Lawrence had no, he had no training in terms of going to war. Because he was sitting in an office, as you said, in the beginning with the army in, in Cairo, and he had archaeological background and he'd obviously surveyed the region. So his, his big strength was he knew the desert backwards and he could speak the language. So he was, he was a brilliant linguist and archaeologist for that matter. But what came out in the, in, in as he started getting involved in the war was, yes, he, he was adventurous, definitely adventurous, but he was a genius tactician and a lot of people don't necessarily know that, but he was very tactical and and an instinctive leader. I think in one of his first battles, one of the leaders of the Arabs got into a fight with another one of his sub-lieutenants, and he had to sort it out. And what he did was the leader at that time killed the other individual. And so Lawrence had to take control, and he ended up actually killing that person that started it. And he felt that that was the fairest thing to do. So he And I think in the end, what they said about him, even Winston Churchill said that any one of those
0: Arabs would have given their life for T.E. Lawrence. Well, it's interesting if we can go back to Aquaba for a second, because it wasn't all heroism and romanticism. When the main tribe had descended into the valley to meet the Turks, Lawrence took to his camel and he was riding down at great speed as, you know, is portrayed so beautifully in the movie. The thing they leave out of the movie is that he shot his camel in the head by mistake on his way down. He was flung into the air and landed and was, was knocked unconscious and actually didn't participate in the battle at all. When he woke up, he realized that they'd won but it was some hours after the battle had already been concluded. Oh, I so didn't yeah.
1: even know that. That's, that's, that's crazy. <laughs>
0: eh? <laughs> not, uh, not exactly the most sterling performance by him during the battle. And another interesting thing about bringing the Arab tribes together, because really they weren't a distinct nation at that stage. He gathered them all in the desert and they all had their Bedouin tents. And after a couple of weeks, of all of them discussing the various options and how they should, you know, amalgamate and which chief would be the chief of all the chiefs and all the rest of it. He noticed that what had started off as 12 distinct fires around which people sat eventually became 3, and his goal was eventually to make that 1, so that all the men were sitting around the same fire, and then he knew he was he was in a position to suggest that they could be a nation. And of course, the saddest thing about this is that the British and the French betrayed them with the Sykes-Picot deal, which was signed all the way over in Europe. And this this was really humiliating to him because he'd promised Faisal and all the other Arabs that this was going to be their chance at independence. And they were betrayed by the colonial powers. And you know that they, the British knew that they were going to betray. So they just said what was needed at the
1: time to pull them together. But Lawrence really believed in them getting an independence. And, you know, after his death... Faisal did, in the end, become king. I know his brother became king of Jordan for many, many years. So that did ultimately come out
0: as such, but under French and British rule. You know, there, there are so many things about this that are, in a way, perfect for movies. And you can see why they've they've made this movie. But there was this story of how he had to cross the desert after capturing Aqaba, And he had to do it himself. There were no telephone lines. There were no telegrams. And if he didn't go himself, they wouldn't have believed that any of the stories were true if he'd sent an emissary. And he went all the way from Aquaba across the most difficult parts of the Sinai Desert back to Cairo to tell the British in Cairo that this is what had happened. And obviously, he he there made uh, significant inroads, and they gave him armored tanks and all the rest of it. And he was eventually able to to take a lot more of the territory over for these newly independent Arabs, or so he thought – and he was dressed in their clothes. you know he used to wear silk Arab traditional dress, and this was most unlikely for an English soldier, and as you say, he spoke Arabic very, very well and really got into the lives of these people, in fact, so much so that there are soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and soldiers who are posted in Jordan and in Saudi Arabia that are American that read lawrence of arabia 's original writing in order to to determine for themselves the best course of action to make peaceful, meaningful, and deliberate alliances with the people of that region. So even now, his work is useful in the in the US military and is prescribed reading, in fact.
1: Uh, that was definitely the case with Afghanistan and the wars in Iraq, etc. That There was a lot that they looked into that because what happened was he actually said that uh, one of the reasons why he wore the white flowing Arab clothes was, yes, it was cool, but it was the right clothes to wear, but also because then the Arabs could speak to him and sort of know what his character was about. So that was definitely fundamental to him actually being part of them. And yeah, he really felt he was part
0: of them for those three or four years. Now, the end of his life wasn't as glorious as the, this part that we've just discussed. And I think it's worth mentioning the way that he died and and perhaps some of the aspects of his personal life, which people might not know. You know how he died. He was killed in a, a motorcycle accident, right? Yes, yeah,
1: so and he loved motorcycles.
0: And Apparently, he had- I- collection
1: yeah he had seven different brow superiors i think they're called i don't know if pronounce it right because i don't know that brand but uh dubbed the rolls royces of motorcycles
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in may the 13th he he was riding the motorcycle in 1935 and speeding through the english countryside and he came across two boys on bicycles so he, he swerved to miss them and he hit his head on the asphalt and he, and he died six days later so that's basically yeah it's a, it, it's a sad end but prior to that. He was very reclusive. If we can look at him as an individual, he would be brilliant and brave, boisterous and aggressive during the war, but he could also be very
0: private and reclusive and even hidden. So
1: two sides to the coin.
0: Well, they say that he was a closeted gay man as well and that he had a couple of relationships while he was in Arabia with some younger Arabian men. And he wrote about these very openly in his in his memoirs and he, he wrote several books, including The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which you can still get in good bookstores now. But this may have played a part. He was also never really the same. You know, once he'd got back to England after being Lawrence of Arabia, he tried to re enlist a number of times under fake names and he kept on being outed as Lawrence of Arabia. And somehow his fame worked against him.
1: Yeah, I think when he got the fame he didn't want it. Uh, I think there was a part of him early on because because he really wanted to rewrite the guilt in his family and the Lawrence family, you know, to, for his dad. that I think he was driving himself for that, trying to take the pain of the guilt away that drove him. But when the fame came just after the war, he ran away from it. I mean, a lot of statements you can see have said that, I'm just an ordinary man. So he was
0: running away from it at that stage. In the end, uh, this was a, an, a, an incredible life and a life which – was surprising in that this man from England had an enormous say in in the way that the borders of the Arab world are to this day decided. And in fact, Osama bin Laden says that it was Lawrence of Arabia who fragmented the Islamic world into all these states, which seem to be very arbitrary. And I suppose you could trace a lot of this back to him, although he was not entirely solely responsible.
1: Yeah, I think for one man to have done that, that's, you know, that's that's tough. But he definitely played a big role. But when the movie came out, it was banned in parts of the Middle East, in Jordan, and then also in Turkey. Even as late as October 2014, the president of Turkey declared that, that Lawrence was one of the, the greatest enemies of the Middle East and Turkey, and even to such an extent worse than the, than the Islamic State, the terrorist group. So those are very powerful negative words.
0: Well, it's interesting because there's such mixed feelings about him in modern Middle Eastern circles. There are some people whose grandfathers fought alongside him and who revere him as being this man who had a lot to do with Arab independence. And then there are those who credit him with coming up with the guerrilla and terrorist tactics that were eventually assimilated into ISIS and into the Taliban and into into many other terrorist organizations. So there's a lot of love and there's a lot of hate.
1: Even Henry Kissinger, um, they said he had done this diplomacy
0: of shuffling between
1: the two parties to try and get the deal through. That was actually Lawrence of Arabia.
0: Well, uh, I mean, not a boring life at all. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's worth watching. There are are parts of it that are obviously dramatized. But the the actual life of this man was was something else. It was colorful beyond belief.
1: Maybe a a summary is just a curious scholar and uh, in his school career that picked it up in a university. Brilliant linguist and archaeologist. And then a shrewd diplomat, as you saw through his life. As I mentioned earlier, instinctive in, in his leadership. Because he never had any formal training, he was a British soldier, avid writer, and a, and a genius tactician, and a seminal figure in shaping and reshaping of Arabian politics. Yeah,
0: I'm glad that we found out all this uh, this stuff about him, and I hope that in listening to this podcast, you've learned a little bit about the man. Certainly not boring. Definitely a, a massive contribution to to the world, and someone who continues to exert an influence on society today. That's Lawrence of Arabia. Blind history is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the CliffCentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. George
1: V tried a knight to knight him in 1918. It was the first time in 900 years of British monarchy that, that someone refused the knighthood because he thought King George V was going to tell him how to solve the problem and give independence to the Arabs. And he just wanted to knight him. So he turned around and walked out and the befuddled king (laughs) apparently didn't know what to do.